the We Make Success Happen podcast. I've always been intrigued by what makes people successful, what success means to them, and how we can apply their techniques to make our lives more successful. with Matt Callanan. Hello and welcome to the We Make Success Happen podcast. My name is Matt Callanan and today we have amazing human Dr. David Hamilton. Hello. Oh, hi. Hi, Matt. And I, I, you know, I, I feel shy about that amazing human. I, I don't think, I don't think, I, I, I certainly don't deserve that kind of uh, that kind of title. Well, you're definitely spreading amazingness around the world, aren't you? So you've written 10 books yeah, yeah. and you're spreading kindness around the world. You're improving people's mindset. You're getting people to be more happy. That's an amazing legacy that you've created right right there. I suppose it's funny. Like it almost sounds, you know, you ever noticed that? It almost sounds different in your own head, doesn't it? From when you hear someone else <laughs> describing what you do. Like so many people sometimes read my bio, I think, my God, that guy sounds quite quite interesting. But in my own head, it's me. <laughs> it's like, what? But you know what I mean, though? It, it always sounds, your, your thoughts about yourself when you hear your bio and stuff always differ from other people's uh, perception, I, I, I find. So you were involved with the pharmaceutical industry that's yeah. what you kind of trained as and what was the kind of tipping point to move you away to where you are now then you know Matt it was it was learning about the placebo effect I'd always had an interest because when I was when I was a kid my mum had postnatal postpartum depression when I was 11 it was I've got three sisters it was after my youngest sister was born and this was 1976, and it wasn't understood very well at the time. In fact, one of the doctors advised my mum to give herself a shake. But I think asking <laughs> someone with postnatal depression to give yourself a shake is like asking someone with a broken ankle to run it off kind of thing. Wow. So it wasn't understood, and my mum struggled a lot. And, and so she sought, help, she sought help in other ways. So she read books, like self-help books, that kind of stuff. She did meditation you know, she, she found ways to, to navigate a course through the difficult times. So when I was a teenager, my mum would often talk about the power of the mind and the mind and meditation, visualisation and positive things, because that's what got her through the difficult days. It didn't cure her, you know, it didn't cure the depression, but it certainly helped her to find a way through it. So when I found myself working as an R&D scientist in the pharmaceutical industry, I was so fascinated by the placebo effect. Why so many people improved on drug trials when they got a sugar pill and it's because they believed they were getting the drug so when I was in the industry I started I created my own little research project that I didn't tell anyone about because and I used to just go down <laughs> to the library and find data and, and understand why does that how does that actually work and it it turns out even back then that I left the industry in the, in the late 90s and even then we understood that if you believe something the belief itself actually alters your brain chemistry and and quite often depending on what it is your brain will generate it will generate the substances that it needs to to produce to meet your expectations so for example if you have a pain and you believe this little white tablet even if it's a sugar pill but you don't know that 
if you believe that that will relieve your pain, then because you believe that, the brain will generate its own painkillers to meet that expectation. And I thought, what? It's unbelievable. And it, it really just, it gave me the, the scientific understanding of how and why the thing, all the techniques my mum used, how and why they actually helped her to get through this time. And I found it was so, I think because my mum and I had had so many conversations that were really fascinating and interesting, I think that's why when I met it face to face in, in drug trials, it was like, whoa, this is the most fascinating thing in the world. And I thought, there's plenty of scientists doing what I do, but there isn't enough people as scientists going out and sharing Help educating people into how you can use your mind and emotions to benefit your health and I thought that's where my passion actually lay so that was my bridge really and I, I just decided one day that like, I'm going to leave and, uh, and I'm going to write books and I'm going to give talks even though speaking in front of people at the time terrified the life out of me but it just felt like the right thing to do at, at the time. What was the turning point then for you kind of leaving? Was there a breaking point where you just thought, that's it, I'm off. I'm good. But that's an amazing kind of visualisation to go, right, I'm going to write books, I'm going to do this. Did yeah. people just think, what, what are you talking about, David? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> you know, back then, back then, I have to say, some of my friends thought I, I was crazy. They thought, what, what are you doing? But, you know, I, I've actually, when I made the decision, it had been bubbling up inside of me for about a year that I, I just didn't feel that the job that I was doing, that that was my, my thing. You know, that was my, I, I couldn't see myself building, you know, developing cardiovascular and cancer drugs for the rest of my life. I just, it just wasn't where my talent lay or where my real passion actually lay. And I, I actually, believe it or not, I was on a, I went on a weekend a seminar, motivational seminar with the big, tall American, Tony Robbins, called Unleash the Tony. Term. Yeah. Unleash the Power Within. And I did a fire walk and all. It was a very first fire walk. And it was just really inspiring and, and motivational. And, and Tony got us at one point, he said, think of a time in your life when something happened that if it, that, that if it hadn't have happened, then your life might have taken a different path. And he said, now make a decision that will shape your life, that will change your life forever. And I thought, that, that's it. That's it. That growing passion to do this. I thought that's it, and I've made my decision, committed to it, and I literally went into work the next day and handed my notice in. I don't think I would have done that had I not been on that seminar. I don't think I would have had the the, the focus or the motivation or the courage. I think I I personally needed uh, an event like that where the energy was high and and it was all about visioning and and seeing what you could become. That's what the whole thing unleash the power within was about. Uh, and I think if I hadn't been on that, amazing I probably seminar. Would have yeah, really, it was the best. It was the best thing I'd ever been on at, at that point in my life, and it was, you know, it changed my life actually because that was my trigger. Yeah, I mean, it was life changing for me. I found well, I went you... to um, Tony Robbins UPW Unleash the Power Within in two thousand and three, and I found the book ah. the other day. You know the the pamphlet that you yeah, write. Yeah. Three and, um, it was three seminars at the time who organised it when I did it. I did Cardiff 1999 UPW. Oh, really? Yeah, Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a, my dad gave me his book, Awaken the Giant Within, yeah, yeah when I was 12 or 13. And that wow. was just life-changing life for me. Wow. And for a, and for then a kid I kind of, at that age as well, to learn all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, it was brilliant. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, that was life-changing because then I was like, all oh, right, you could... 
predict or visualize your future. And then it was like the idea that you had a growth mindset and that actually you could think about things that you wanted to achieve in life and what you could attract it or you could write it down. And there's certain pathways to improve the chances. Yeah. I mean, it was brilliant. So, but yeah, walking across coals and doing that UPW weekends with Tony Robbins was amazing. So it was after that that you basically handed in your notice the next day. Pretty much, yeah. I, I worked with AstraZeneca Brilliant. at the time, you know, very, very well-known <laughs> company. <laughs> you should have seen my boss's face when I said, well, uh, John, I just, you know, I, I just, you know, I, st- I stammered a wee bit. Because I knew I had to do it. I, I did my, Tony had this doing a power move and I was outside his office. I went, I can do it. I can do a power move. And I walked in, right, John? <laughs> and I stammered a bit and I, I said, right, John, I, I'm, I'm handing in my notice. I'm leaving. And he literally stood right. It was like he was on a spring. He just sprung backwards out of his chair. I was, it was literally <laughs> almost took off. It was, whoa, right back out of his chair. He was just, it was such a, a shock to, to the system that, that, because I was in a, I was in a really quite a senior position, uh, you know, for for my age. Given I'd only been in the company for four years at that point, but I'd moved up really quickly, and and it was just such a whew, thing. But he understood, though. He understood. He was a lovely guy, and he understood where my passion lay, and he was really supportive after the initial shock. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So, what did you discover about the mind then? What's its powers that we should all know about? Well, really everything you think about and feel has a physiological effect. I mean, for example, you know, when you feel stressed, most people don't realize, don't make this connection, but when you feel stressed, you produce stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol. But those stress hormones are not produced because you're in a stressful situation. They don't just appear because you're in a situation that's stressful. They get produced because it feels stressful. It's how it feels, it's the feelings of stress that generate stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol. But let's say you do something kind for someone, you help someone in need, even just pay someone a compliment, and it makes you smile, but it feels nice, doesn't it? Well, that feeling itself has significant physiological consequences inside the brain, but also all throughout the body. In fact, it produces not stress hormones, I I call them kindness hormones. I mean, that's not an official name. I just give it those names, but I I give them, I call them kindness hormones really to draw that parallel that they're produced not because you've done something kind. They don't just appear because you've done an act of kindness. They appear in your brain and body because of how kindness feels. So it's how stress feels that produces the stress hormones like cortisol, adrenaline, but it's how kindness feels and compassion feels that produce kindness hormones. Now it turns out They do weird and wonderful things. One of the things they do is they act on the stress, worry, fear, anxiety region of the brain. MRI scans show that when you get the kindness hormone in the brain, it goes to that region. It's called the amygdala. It's it's like an almond-shaped area that's associated with fear and stress and worry and anxiety. Once the kindness hormone gets there, it turns it down like a dimmer switch. Just like if you go up to the, you know, you've got a few bit dimmer switches in your home and you could turn down the light intensity. So the kindness hormone literally binds to the amygdala and turns its activity down and, and lessens its activity. And by doing that, it brings more activity to the front region of the brain that's more associated with positive experience, positive emotion, that kind of thing. But it does multiple things all throughout the body as well. So I, I found all that kind of stuff. It's so amazing 
but no one knows about it. And that's why I that's why I give talks in this and it's why I write books in this because I think the more people who understand that there are side effects, if you will, of being kind. And it's really not just it's not just kindness, but every state of mind has a physiological effect. So the skill in life, I think, one of the skills in life becomes noticing the contents of your mind. And given the fact that the contents of your mind, because of how it feels and what thinking is like, can have different effects, you can teach yourself over time to direct your mind and your thinking in a particular way that's more conducive to good health. So you wrote a book called The Five Effects of Kindness. What are the five then? The five side effects of kindness. The, the first one is that kindness makes you happier, right? It's, it, it's a boost to mental health. There's lots of research that shows that. The second one is that kindness is good for the heart. And it's because the kindness hormone, it acts on the lining of your blood vessels and it softens them. It actually softens the lining of the blood vessels and it causes them to expand and that means that you end up with a reduction in blood pressure because the heart doesn't have to push quite as hard uh, to get the blood through. So it's actually called, the kindness hormone is called cardioprotective. And that means protects the, the cardiovascular system. It, another side, of the third side effect is that it slows aging. There's a number of internal processes in the body that are associated with, with aging. And, and the kindness hormone and other I guess nervous system effects of how kindness feels act on these aging processes. One, one for example, is the, the gradual weakening of the immune system. It's called the immunosenescence. And what the kindness hormone does is it cleans the environment around immune cells, takes this pressure off it, and it allows the immune system to strengthen. But there's a number of aging processes, and that's just one of them. The fourth side effect is kindness improves relationships. And I think that's a no-brainer. I think most people would agree that you tend to like people who are kind to you and you tend not to like people so much who are not kind to you. So that, that's really quite obvious. But there's a lot of heap of research in it anyway. But the last one, most exciting of all, I think, is that kindness is contagious. And it has an R number of about between four and five. Actually closer to five, to be honest. And it varies from place to place according to your population density, type of environment, etc. But it creates a ripple effect that goes out and scientists have actually measured how far out the ripple of kindness goes. So that's the five side effects. of. I call them side effects because having worked in the pharmaceutical industry, we think of a side effect as the negative side effect of a drug. But a side effect is really just anything that happens on the side of the thing that you're trying to accomplish. Amazing. So those are the five side effects of kindness. And you mentioned there that when you're kind, that person then goes on to potentially be kind to five other people. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. As I say, I've, I've written 10 books and I research hundreds of scientific papers for each of these books. And of the thousands over the years of scientific papers I've gone through, I have never come across anything more contagious than kindness. And our number of, of between four and five, so let's, let's take five as an example. And what that means is when you be kind to someone, because of how that person feels, if you were to follow that person around for the rest of the day, which I hope you wouldn't do, but if you did, <laughs> if, if we had a wee drone following the person around, what you would probably see on average is that person, because of how you made them feel, whether it's warm or connected or grateful, however it is, that person will either be kind or kinder to five people 
on average, over the course of the rest of the day. I say on average because one person might only be kind to three people, but someone else might be kind to six or seven, but it'll average itself out. And so over the course of the rest of the day, while the feeling is still hot, if you will, while the feeling and the memory of that experience is still there, that person will be kind or kinder, five people, and it might be within 20 minutes or it might be over the whole day. But each of those five will be kind or kinder to five further people. And that's 25 now, and that's now two steps away from you. But each of those 25 will also be kind or kinder to five people. And now we're at 125, and that's three steps from you. And the reason I say three steps is that ripple to three steps was measured by researchers at Harvard and Yale. And they call it three degrees of separation. They say that they showed that an act of kindness will usually go out from you to three degrees of separation, meaning three social steps. So you be kind to someone, that person will be kind to someone else, well actually five, and that's at one social step, who'll be kind to other people at two social steps, who'll be kind to other people at three. So it literally fans out, like you drop a pebble in a pond, and it goes plop, and it creates a wee wave. The wave doesn't just go in one direction, it's circular. It goes out in all directions, and there are lily pads all over it, that side, that side, that side, that side, going like that. And they have no idea why they're doing that, but they're doing it because of the wave. And the wave was created by the pebble dropped in the pond. And the peb that, that's an analogy, that's a, a metaphor for the act of kindness, which spreads out to three social steps in all directions. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I think that's an incredible, if anyone's doubting being kind to anyone yeah. else, I think that there, that reason, that scientific evidence alone should be enough reason for you to go and be kind to someone else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, why do you think it's so contagious then? It's because of how it, it feels. One of the oldest genes in the human genome is the gene for the kindness hormone. It's about 500 million years old and five days. I'm all joking about the five days. It's, it's about five, <laughs> 500 million years old. And so over that period of time, it's become integrated into a large number of systems. But it's also activated when you feel the feelings associated with kindness. And through evolution, what it, it's called, the scientists say it's conserved. And what conserved means is through all of evolution, no matter what's happened, what direction species have taken, we still have it here 500 million years later. So what, what it means is, ultimately, is that feeling is when someone helps you or you help someone else, it feels nice, but it also feels kind of connected and, and there's a rightness to it. And it's a kind of uplifting feeling and it's very, very strong. And so the reason why it's contagious is because of how it feels. And it's not just that it feels nice. There's also a sense of social connection that comes with it as well. And so it's inbuilt into us over this 500 million years of evolution, this drive for social connection. So when someone helps you and it feels nice, or you help someone else, it feels nice. It, not only does it feel nice, but there's this drive to reach out and connect because the gene for kindness is also involved in social connection. It has multiple roles in the body, but one of its roles is to, to almost glue society together. I sometimes call it biosocial glue. The kindness hormone, because it really does, it, it thrives in social connection. It, it increases in a socially connected uh, environment. So that's really why kindness is so contagious, because of that drive for connection that's involved in the whole, what you call the kindness chain, I, I suppose. 
And when I did one of my first proper sort of kindness things, which was taking a big issue vendor into a supermarket with some money I'd won on a lottery scratch card and telling him to, we took, got a basket and filled it up. And I said, look, it's on me. And when I came out and he gave me this massive hug and big kiss on the cheek and I felt warm and I felt connected and I thought, I want to do more of this. Now, do you think kindness can be addictive? It, it certainly can. Because what becomes addictive is is the feeling that you get. It's, it's nature's reward. Nature. It's almost like nature is rewarding you with not only a good feeling, but a number of internally beneficial physiological effects that you don't see because they're on the inside of the body, but, but they really are so good for you. It's almost like nature is saying, yes, more of this, please. And so nature has built into us this almost, you know, like the drive to reproduce. So we have this drive to connect. So nature has built into us to the point that it can also, it can feel addictive. It's just, nature has inbuilt into us this drive to keep reaching out and connecting. So it, nature is saying, when you be kind and it feels nice, that's nature through millions of years of evolution saying, yes, more of this, please keep doing it. And this is what, this is the reward that you get, but also all of society gets as well. So is that correct that if you are kind to someone else and someone else witnesses that kindness or potentially even witnesses, sees it online or on social, don't they also get a release of the same kind of chemicals as well? Uh, absolutely. In fact, when I talk about the R number of kindness is five, that's an R number based on just physical human connection. But if that, if that effect is known, like you know what it's like if you see something inspiring, like a, an act of kindness on a video and it moves you, if a million people watch that, I'll bet you, you know, 50,000, 100,000, maybe a quarter of a million will be nice, kind or kinder to someone over the, probably immediately, but over at least the next couple of hours. Millions of households will have people paying each other compliments simply because they were moved or inspired by that video. So it really does have, it, it literally can benefit the hearts and the immune systems and the, the brain chemistry of millions of people. So inspiring content is especially good because of the physical effects and the, con the ripple effect that they have. I think videos like that are made because they feel good and it's what people want to see. But at the same time, they do set in motion a ripple effect and they do have very, very beneficial effects. I watch dog rescue videos every day. And after a little, <laughs> after the, the initial moment of stress of seeing the, the mess that the dog has got into, you know, whatever has happened to it, I then feel really moved and inspired by the vets and the care workers who are looking after it and helping it. And then I cry during it as well. And, and afterwards, I just want to tell the world that I love it. You know, you know spread kindness after that because I get so moved by it. So what does kindness mean to you, David? It feels the, like the right thing for me just being human, it, all, it always feels, almost always feels like the right thing to do. I feel that I have a role to play at the moment in sharing this information. And, and it's why I post so much in social media about kindness. It's why I write so much in my books about it as well. I mean, it's funny when I write, when I post in social media, it's not my own, kindness ones aren't my biggest posts usually, but I do it anyway, because it, for me, it's the right thing to do. And I feel because I I'm a scientist by trade, then I feel that if, if not a lot of people are doing this, then I'm going to do it. Because if, I, if I'm not doing this right, gathering all this information, all these research studies and packaging them in books, if I'm not doing this, 
then at the moment there's no one else doing it. So I, I feel like I have a not I'd say I'm not really a role. It's not like you've been singled out for a role. I just feel there's a space there. There is a, an important job to be to be done, and there's no one filling it. So I fell into that that kind of role, and I keep doing it because I, I know that the message is very important, and, and at all times, but especially during the times over this last last year. But it's it's such an important message. So I I, I feel not like I've God is saying you have been singled out to do this. It's, <laughs> I don't mean it in that kind of way. I just mean that there's that role has to be played and. I have gathered all the signs together, so I thought I might as well just keep sharing it until more people do it, and then I don't have to do it. And I'll probably still do it anyway, but more people with louder voices probably will will, will take over, I guess. Well, I think you're doing a, a sterling job, and we definitely need more people like you and more leaders. And you were talking there about Lady Gaga as well, involved with kindness and her mum. Yeah, Tell you us know, about your, the connection there. I, I got an email from Lady Gaga's charity office, Bornis Way Foundation. I almost deleted it because I thought it was just a, I actually thought it was a, it came into my, my website email address and I thought it was just a, a general mass email kind of thing. And I didn't really read it properly. And it was a couple of days later, I was in a hotel and I just finished giving a talk and I was coming back to my hotel and, and I, I, I thought something was niggling at me and I read that and I'm oh my God. And, and basically Lady Gaga had read one of my kindness books and loved it, and was quoting it, quoting content from it. In fact, I believe she gave a talk in the White House and quoted me in the White, quoted my a line from my book in the White House. So her office, her charity, Bornisway Foundation, reached out to me, and I, I, over the couple, last couple of years, I've done a few bits of work and, and got to know her mum, Cynthia, who's one of the most kindest, most beautiful people you will ever meet. She's such a good human being. And uh, and she gave me this lovely tea. I went over to New York to, they were doing a, chat, a, a kindness project in a school in Long Island where the kids had all used some of their own Christmas allowance to buy Christmas presents for the children of women mm. in a local homeless shelter. Uh, and the whole project was about the kids bringing in all those presents and they filled a yellow bus full of them. And the whole thing was about them learning how that feels and why that is so important. Because these kids won't get these presents otherwise. And then they had they would learn about, you know, talk about it, write reports and what it means and how kindness can change the world. And, and that's the kind of thing that Lady Gaga and her mum and their team do. And I thought I was so moved by it. And Cynthia, her mum, gave me this lovely Be Kind t-shirt. It's like black t-shirt with the white words, Be Kind. And I, I, I love it. It's one of, probably my favourite t-shirt simply because it was such a kind thing to do to give it to me, but it also looks really cool. I, I really should have it on the now, actually. <laughs> yeah, I, like I didn't know you were going to ask me about that. That's yeah, it should have been worn it, yeah. <laughs> if I kno had known that you were going to ask me about that connection, I would have wore the T-shirt today. That's a brilliant connection to have. <laughs> yeah. So moving in, into like thinking about the mind, how could we improve our confidence and self-confidence? Well, you know, I've talked a wee bit at the, so far of like the mind affects the body, but the body also affects the mind. And, and it's it, it's actually called, it's a two-way street. It's called, scientists have a name for it. They call it bi-directional. And what it means is just like how I feel will impact my body. So if you feel happy, for example, you smile. Not because you, you remember to, not because you say, oh, I feel really happy. What does that do with my face? Oh, I yeah, it's an automatic reflex <laughs> reaction. So that's it going out the way. How you feel impacts the body, goes out the way, but it goes both ways, bi-directional. What you do with your body 
feeds back into the brain. Fiddles about with your brain chemistry, but it also affects how you feel. You know, see when a person is struggling with self-esteem, and I know this for a fact because I, I wrote one of my books is called I Heart Me, and it's all about self-esteem. And it was me learning self-esteem five years ago when I was really struggling. No one really knew it. You can sort of fake it if you, you can get by in your life without people knowing your internal struggles, as I think most of us know. And so when you're struggling with confidence or self-esteem, you wear it on your body. Not all the time, but in particular environments. And when you're interacting with particular types of people, you know, if you're struggling with confidence or self-esteem, what you'll notice, what you probably won't notice is that your shoulders will roll in and you'll probably sit back on your hips and curve your spine a little bit and your your body will you'll actually get smaller. Not you're not physically shrinking, but the way you roll your shoulders and your spine and even avert your gaze, it's very subtle. Sometimes it's not obvious. But you literally become smaller, if you like. And that's because of how you feel. But given that it's a two-way street, bi-directional, if you stand up, if you straight, like, lengthen your spine, the way, the way I describe it is imagine that you're taking a bicycle pump and pumping up your spine like an old bicycle pump that pumps a tyre, and your spine gets stronger. And imagine you're lengthening your spine by a centimetre. And as you do that, just relax your shoulders. Pick your head up. And then breathe. Not from here, but from, from your, your tummy, you know, comfortable, but not a chest breath, but a lower down breathe. And just pay attention to your breath with your shoulders relaxed, spine up. And what that does is it feeds back into the brain and it will actually start to make you feel the way that your body is saying. It's almost like your body, you can use your body to create a sense of how you want to feel. That's a quote actually from a woman called Amy Cuddy, who did some research at Harvard where she got people to stand like Wonder Woman or Superman. And within just a minute or two, it caused quite a substantial change in a balance of hormones. And the hormone balance she measured was stress hormones versus hormones associated with confidence and self-esteem. And she found that that balance changed very, very quickly, simply when you went from that to that. So at that, what you get is more stress hormones, less confidence hormones. But literally just standing up, Straighten your back, drop your shoulders, head up, and breathe. The balance flicked all the way around, and you got an increase in confidence hormones and a massive drop in stress hormones. Not from positive thinking, not from telling yourself, I'm great, I can do this. Nothing at all, literally just using your body, just standing up straight. And it's because the reason it works so fast is language is relatively recent in the whole span of human evolution. I mean, language is what? 10, 15,000 years old, that, that or thereabouts. For eons of evolution, human beings and our ancestors communicated their feelings with through body language and gesture. So if a person felt happy, it was, and, and maybe a, a grunt or something, if they felt afraid or sad, it, it's that kind of stuff. And anthropologists visiting tribes who've never been in contact with the Western world find exactly the same facial expressions and body language, which means it's something ingrained in the human species, genetically wired over eons of evolution. So the reason why adjusting your body language affects how you feel so fast is because the loudest voice your brain hears isn't the words that you're speaking because it's so recent language, it's how you hold and move your body. It, oh, you could say that the loudest voice your brain hears is what your body's doing. So that's why it affects you so fast.
Fascinating. That's incredible. So actually carrying yourself like standing tall and kind of walking with, with confidence actually communicates that to the brain then. It, it does. And it's, it, I know how kind of woo-woo that sounds. It's, it really does sound like, surely, if it was as easy as that, we'd all be doing it. <laughs> Most people don't know about it. This is, again, coming back to why, why I write the books that I write, because most people just don't know this. And if they did, it would make quite a big difference. It doesn't mean that someone with real deep struggles with their self-esteem that just straighten their back is going to cure them in a day. It doesn't mean that necessarily. But if they work at it, it can help. And I know that because I, I wrote my book on self-esteem because I was chronically struggling with it. And the biggest breakthrough I got over the first four or five months was doing nothing other than just correcting my body language. Recognising the particular environments and situations and the particular people whom I felt my body language went into, you know, I'm not enough, I'm not good enough, or I'm shy, or I'm really small. Mm. And, I every, and I taught myself to notice it. I even had a wee reminder on my phone that pinged me every hour about my body language, what, what's your body language? And it was like a habit of just doing that. So I just kept correcting it and relentlessly. And the more you relentlessly correct it, what you're actually doing is you're working out the muscles. You go to the gym, you work out a muscle that gets stronger. You go, you start running, the muscles get firmer and stronger. So if you're correcting your posture muscles, then what's going to happen is the new posture is going to become ingrained. It's going to become a habit and those muscles will actually get stronger. And as that happens, then the feelings associated with that become more ingrained as well. And for me, that was a life-changing experience of all the self-help things I've ever learned in my whole life. I'd rank that number one for the biggest gains from the least amount of, of mental effort. Just simply standing up straight, dropping your shoulders. Wow, that is amazing, isn't it? Because yeah. it seems so simple as well that you wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't think it would work. You wouldn't think it would work, but I, I can testify to this. It was the, <laughs> it was, I had a few massive breakthroughs in my self-esteem journey over a couple of years when I wrote the book. It's the longest I ever took to write a book because I was struggling so much with my, my inner self-esteem. Uh, and that was the, the big, the, that was a catalyst for me. That's what really got, got my life moving back on track, doing nothing other than just standing or sitting up straight, being acutely aware several times a day of what my body language is like and just making an adjustment, just make an adjustment, just make that adjustment. Even if you're standing in, in line at a coffee shop, you know, which I found myself, I say that as an example, because often when I'm in a coffee shop, what I would do is I'd get out my phone and go like that. And the head, you know, you put your head, you, you look down on it instead of what you should actually do is hold your phone up and keep your back straight <laughs> instead of doing that. Yeah. And or what I'd, I'd maybe do is I'd I'd stand and kind of slouch and, and all that. So what I started to do in coffee shops is hands in my pocket, as if I'm doing a power pose, you know, Wonder Woman or Superman thing, but just less subtle, eh, a, bit, a bit more subtle, I should say. Hands in the pocket, but straighten my spine, <laughs> drop my shoulders, and breathe. And it's amazing that when you teach yourself to do that until it's a habit, then when it becomes a habit, you no longer have to try and do it. It's a default. And because of this bi-directional communication, the default also becomes a difference in how you feel in terms of confidence and self-esteem. I love that. I thought you were going to say that you were in your Superman outfit, just sort of like standing in the queue with your, your cape. Yeah, I, I, I leave that to fancy dress parties and stuff like that. Yeah, we'll link to that Amy Cuddy. I think it was a TED talk, wasn't it? Yeah, that yeah. Amy Cuddy talk Amy Cuddy, about the power I've... move. So yeah, we'll link that in the, uh, the show notes. And what was the name of your book? 
um, for that I, I self-esteem? I, I heart me. It, it, the, the cover looks like the I heart New York, the red heart kind of thing. So I just, I heart me. Yeah, we're linked to that as well. So didn't you mention right at the beginning that you had a fear of speaking because I just released a um, podcast episode. So I went through the whole journey of absolutely hating public speaking is the biggest fear just after something had happened to me in school and I had this limiting belief that I couldn't get up on stage. Mm. So how did you get over that fear? Uh, I, I've had it a couple of times actually in, in different phases of my life. But initially I was terrified of, of speaking. And it's funny, I thought, here I am leaving my job as a scientist to be a writer and speaker. And I think I was so inspired by Tony Robbins. And I thought, I can see, that's what I want to do is be educating and, and, and look. And I'm looking around at the smiles in people's faces and people feeling happy and they're changing their life for the better. And I thought, I want to help people to do that. I want to do what Robbins is doing but with my own stuff, my own content about with the science and the kindness and stuff. And I thought, I just want to do that. And it felt so inspiring that when I handed him my notice, I remember about six weeks into that three-month notice period, I, I had to do a three-month notice period because of the position I had. Uh, and six weeks into it, I remember waking up in a nightmare, sweating, thinking, what am I doing? Speaking in front of people frightens <laughs> the life out of me. I used to get the, yeah. the, the lip that does that, and it was terrifying. You know, I, I had all these terrifying dreams leading up to my very first public speaking event. But I guess what helped me then was the old, the Susan Jeffers thing, the title of that book, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. And I just kept telling myself, I'm going to feel the fear and do it anyway. This feels like a stretch for me. And what I did, I, I, pra I made sure that I was well prepared. I, I think if you're really well prepared, it, not necessarily in how to say everything, but I found what helped me is I found a certain number of things that I couldn't wait to, to share, that I couldn't wait to talk about. And because I was particularly passionate about those things, you know, maybe, you know, let's say my first talk, hour long talk, and, and I've got four or five scientific studies I can't wait to tell you because it's so amazing, so interesting. And so what I tried to do is remind myself when I was about to go speak, of those things, I would remind myself, and then if I happen to forget at any point what I was going to say next, I could just pull in one of those studies. It doesn't matter if the whole thing's out of order; it doesn't matter. So that helped me that with feel the fear. But later, it, what helped me a lot was working on self-esteem and the the confidence kind of stuff. That helped me late further down the line when I went through a little crisis of confidence associated with self-esteem. That's brilliant. Yeah, because I think it's such a, a brilliant skill to be able to tell your story and like you, just inspire others and, you know, use your voice to help create positive change in people. Mm. So, yeah, I think it's a, a brilliant skill. Another one of your clearly one of your brilliant skills is writing a book. Now, for anyone who might be listening, do you think one, do you think there's a book in every, everyone's got a book inside them? And what do you think the, the secret of success for writing a book or successfully writing a book? How do you go about it? I, I do think everyone has a book inside them. And I don't mean that everyone needs to write a book. I mean that everyone has a story to tell. Everyone has a history. Everyone has a life. That Everyone has a story that other people would love to hear about. But not just a story. Other Some people have passions and, and things that they would love to share and how to do something. You know, I think everyone has some version of a story. And, and passion to share. The best pieces of advice I could give 
is just start. And that sounds really, really corny, but maybe I'll, I'll explain it a bit better. I found, I've written 11 books now, I've never started writing a book on chapter one. Not once. Not once have I begun a book on chapter one. I find if you over plan and structure, you'll never actually, you might never start the book because <laughs> chapter one isn't really the, the, the guts of it, isn't really the best bit that you want to share. So if you start on cha- start writing on chapter one, you get bored or, or you know, so, I don't mean you get bored, but, but life can take over, you know, life can get busy, can't it? And, and a, chapter one might not be a good enough reason to keep writing your book when life gets busy. But if you st- I, I start most of my books in the middle. In fact, my very first book, the, the chapter I began with, eventually became, I think, either chapter six or chapter seven. I decided to start with the subject matter, the bit of my story, if you will. So if, if it's a story someone's got, start with the bit that most gets you. Start in the middle of the book, because that's the part of the story you really want to tell. That, for me, that was a, the subject I really wanted to share. And then, if you do that, get really into the book, get really passionate about it. And even if life gets busy, even if stuff happens that takes over in life, you'll still find the time to do it because you love what you're doing, because you've started at the good bit. My chapter one is usually one of the last bits of the book I write. Chapter one, two, and three, that's usually just later on, that's just say, okay, now I've written the good bits, I better get the re- I better show the reader how to get to there. So I better do the, the filler <laughs> stuff. I'll, I'll do the first couple of chapters so that they can get to the good bits. You know what I mean? That's what I've done for all of my books. It's a nightmare for my publisher, really, because they really want, <laughs> most publishers want an outline of the book. I really struggle with a pre-outline because the final book's not going to look very much like that at all. So I just do that for their sake. I throw a wee paragraph and I say, well, this is what probably the subject chapters will be. It probably won't really at the end, but that'll do for now. And I put a wee paragraph about each. That's for a book submission, you have to put a paragraph or two about each your chapters. I find that hard because I don't really know what chapter one and two is going to be until I've really dived into chapter seven or six or seven. And then I'll know how to get to chapter six or seven. I'll know what chapter one and two is going to be later. So I just do that for the publisher's sake, but I'm a bit of a nightmare for them because I know that I probably don't give them as much detail on the early chapters as most other authors do. But I don't think there's a correct way to write a book. I think if you ask 10 authors, how do you write your book? They'll give you 10 different answers. I failed my English at school as well. I learned to write on the job. I think sometimes in life we we try to go on another course or learn this and learn that before we... And then you say, once I have enough knowledge, then I will do such and such. And my experience in life has been you tend to learn more in the process of doing it. I don't know how many parents have read a parenting manual before they had their kids. Most people, you learn to become a good parent by being a parent. And then you can write about it afterwards. So I think it's like that with writing a book. You don't need to know how to write the book before you do it. Just do it your way. You'll find your own way. You'll not only find your own voice, but you'll find your own way. You'll find your style. And and this is how I do it. And maybe further down the line, you'll be the one giving advice on how to write a book. I never imagined that one day I would ever be on a podcast and giving people advice on how to write a book. Me, <laughs> you know, when I started out, I had no, absolutely no idea at all what I was doing. Absolutely not a squat of an idea 
how to even start a book. That's why I started on chapter six. I had no idea how to do it. I was reading one of your blog posts earlier about how to write a book. So we'll we'll link that in the show notes because yeah. I think that'll be really handy for people. So what's this 11th book that you've just handed in just yesterday? Tell us about that. Yeah, it comes out in September. It has a, a, an unusual title, Why Woo Woo Works. And I've really just taken a number of subjects that I would say unfairly get a title of woo woo you know, pseudoscience. And it's not because they deserve that title. It's because people who give it that title don't actually know that there's a heck of a lot of science available on it. So I picked a number of subjects that typically get those titles, that cast off name, if you like. And I, I, I developed the science of not only why it works, but how all of the, these things work. I went from mainstream right into heavy duty, woo-woo. And I made the point all throughout the book that it's not necessarily woo-woo it's simply because you don't know that there's stuff there's, there's there's philosophy on it or the science that's been really really rigorously worked through just most people don't know about it because when you call something woo-woo or pseudoscience most of the time it's because it, not because you're an expert on it but because you're not an expert is why you call it that because you're not an expert because you really don't know that there is actually stuff on it so i call it knee-jerk skepticism so I've written it, and I've written it really bringing the best of my scientific ability to, to read and understand material like that. It took me a while. It took me over a year to write it, actually. So, yeah, it's going to be coming out in September then, you yeah, said? Yeah, end of September, yeah. What does success mean to you? Oh, that's a good question. I, I can honestly say I've never been asked that on a podcast. What does success mean to me? Eh, hey, I, I don't think for me success is about maybe any physical achievements. Maybe maybe that's a small maybe maybe that there's satisfaction there, but I wouldn't call you know, for example, achieving the achievement of writing some books, I wouldn't call that success. I would call that satisfaction. For me, I, I would say success for me was being able to be a decent person. Being able to be a good person despite what happens in life, despite you know, regardless of what's happening, if I can be a good human being, then I suppose I would call that success. And, and, and if I can be that person to my loved ones, family, partner, family, mum and dad, sisters, nieces and nephews and children and all that stuff, if I can be a good, per a decent human being and maintain that through my life, then I would look back and say my life has been a success. I like it. So where can people check you out? And haven't you got like some free courses and a, a membership part of your site as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I, DrDavidHamilton.com is my website. I, I've got a courses tab on that. Uh, and there's a free course called The Biology and Contagiousness of Kindness. So several thousand people have done that. It, it's entirely free. You just literally click on it, put your name in, your email address. It's not so that you're on a big mailing list. It's nothing like that at all. It's simply so that I know, so that my system knows where to send the link, the, the joining link to the course. But it's totally free. There's four modules teaching all about the biology and contagiousness of kindness. And I have a, a membership community called Personal Development Club. And, and I teach, I, I give a monthly live online seminar once a month, plus an additional live Q&A for members as well. And I update a site with new teaching materials, new stuff when it comes, new research when it comes out, that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, so go check out drdavidhamilton.com and see all the amazing things that he's up to. So last question then. Imagine all your friends and family are maybe down by a beach, lovely sunny day like it is today, blue sky, sun's out, and you've hired one of these little planes that flies across with a big banner behind it. And these are your final Mm. words of wisdom to all your friends and family and loved ones. What would it say on there? It would just say, be kind. And that's it. If I had enough letters, I would say, because it's almost always the right thing to do. But I think that would be too long. (laughs) It would get blown about in the wind. But I'd say at least be kind would be my my banner on on that little plane. And what would it say after it, did you say? Uh, Because it's almost always the right thing to do. Yeah, let's go with the big banner. Yeah, I'd go with the big long one there. (laughs) You you have to look right along the sky. (laughs) Be kind dot, dot, dot. Because it's almost always the right thing to do. Maybe I got a T-shirt with it. Maybe I should make my own T-shirt to complement the one that Lady Gaga's mum gave me. I should get be kind in the front, dot, 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 because it's almost always the right thing to do on the back. Might get a conversation starter. Yeah, I think you've got a bit of a, a branding thing there yeah. going on. I think you've just uh, heard an exclusive there, listener. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Well, thank you very much, Dr. David Hamilton. It's been amazing. Thank you. My pleasure and fun. Subscribe, rate and review the We Make Success Happen podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, I would really appreciate you leaving us a great review up on iTunes or your Apple Podcast app. It means a lot. Thank you very much. I've been Matt Callanan and I'll see you on the next episode. This is the We Make Success Happen podcast with Matt Callanan.